Just enough water, just enough wine, just enough crumbs, a dollar and a dime, just enough hope to keep us towing the line. But sooner or later, That's Sooner or Later by Eliza Gilkinson. It's your introduction to Activist Radio, where we offer some history. We're pretty sure you didn't learn in high school. We have uh, several news stories that you haven't seen in the New York Times. And we have a couple of music selections to help you join the resistance. Activist Radio can be heard Thursdays, 8 to 9 a.m. on KBOO. That's 90.7 FM in Portland, Oregon. Thursdays 11 to 12 noon on WRFA, and that's 107.9 FM in Jamestown, New York. Thursdays 5 to 6 p.m. on WVKR, 91.3 FM at Vassar College in Poughkeepsie, New York. Thursdays 7 to 8 p.m. on WBDY, and they're at 99.5 FM at the Bundy in Binghamton, New York. Sundays 1.30 to 2.30 p.m. on WESU, and that's 88.1 FM at Wesleyan University in Middletown, Connecticut. Sundays 4 to 5 p.m. from WIOF, and that's 104.1 FM in Woodstock, New York. Sundays 5 to 6 p.m. from the Progressive Radio Network at PRN.Live, that's PRN.Live. And finally, Mondays, 11 to 12 noon on WCAA, that's 107.3 FM in Albany, New York. Past programs are available as a podcast, just search on Activist Radio, or you can come to classwars.org anytime and listen to our last 10 programs. Our guest today is going to be Alexis Stambelis, longtime activist, executive director of the Committee in Solidarity with the People of El Salvador, that's CISPACE. We talk today about the long history of corporate interests that have frustrated the will of the El Salvadoran people for true democracy in their country, which brings me the views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station, its board of directors, its constituents, just simply the views of me today, Fred, and I'm bringing you up to date on America's hidden class wars. People's Day by Otis Gibbs. We use it as the introduction to the first part of Activist Radio. We call it History You Didn't Learn in High School. Well, of course, it's the history of social struggle that you don't learn in our corporate media. 
So this section often reminds us of the things maybe we do remember, uh, or maybe we haven't read in the history books. The history of the struggle to gain our democracy, to regain our morality and foreign policy, it's the struggle of the people against the people in charge. Alright, we're going to go in history now to January 11th, 2002. The very first of the detainees, uh, called enemy combatants, arrived at Guantanamo Bay, the U.S. military base on the southeastern coast of Cuba. The first release of detainees was ten months later, when four prisoners, quote, who no longer posed a threat to U.S. security, unquote, um, they were let go, and that left 625 men in indefinite detention. But why go through the tortures that these detainees endured? The waterboarding, the beatings, the anal rapes. We all know what the records show. But not many are willing to go over this shame that engulfed our nation over 20 years ago. We even remember some of the pictures of nude prisoners with dog collars being humiliated by their young guards. They even exchanged pictures of prisoners being dragged and threatened by guard dogs, the same sort of gory witness as young whites posing by black people after a hanging in the Jim Crow South. On January 2009, President Obama signed an executive order closing Guantanamo Bay within a year. After a case-by-case -case review of each prisoner, he also signed an order that prohibited the CIA from secretly holding detainees in other countries. But five years later, 136 prisoners still remained. I think it's worthwhile to explore why the U.S. kept so many prisoners for so long. And I think it comes to down to simply having no evidence. These people had been captured and locked up without even the semblance of due process. Many were sold into the hands of the U.S. Special Forces in Afghanistan for a price between 3000 and up to $25,000. And that's all the U.S. prosecutors had for many inmates, how much they had been sold off into slavery for. For the very few that the U.S. had some evidence for, the systemic torture of prisoners meant that anything they had said between simulated drownings could hardly be used in a real court. So that was the dilemma. No proof to go on, and nothing the inmates said could be held up in court. Years of torture and psychological abuse had worn these inmates down. They were willing to say just about anything. But their writings remain as a last link to their humanity. They wrote poetry on paper cups, and enough was finally smuggled out to publish a book entitled Poems from Guantanamo, The Detainees Speak. Our local peace group, Duchess Peace, held poetry readings dressed in our orange suits. It was hard going for some of us, a poem is a window on someone else's humanity. You can't read it without understanding what they've been through, understanding what the U.S. Empire had done to them. 
let's hear one of these poems. Uh, this is the death poem by Juma al-Dosari. Al-Dosari, a 33-year-old Bahraini national, is the father of a young daughter. He's been held at Guantanamo Bay for more than five years. In addition to being detained without charge or trial, Dasari has been subjected to a range of physical and psychological abuse, some of which is detailed in Inside the Wire, an account of the Guantanamo prison by former military intelligence soldier Eric Saar. He's been held in solitary confinement since the end of 2003, and according to the U.S. military, has tried to kill himself 12 times while in the prison. On one occasion, he was found by his lawyer, hanging by his neck and bleeding from a gash to his arm. Juma al-Dosari was transferred to Saudi custody on July 16, 2007. His status is uncertain. Death Poem Take my blood. Take my death shroud and the remnants of my body. Take photographs of my corpse at the grave, lonely. Send them to the world, to the judges and to the people of conscience. Send them to the principled men and the fair-minded. Let them bear the guilty burden before the world of this innocent soul. Let them bear the burden before their children and before history of this wasted, sinless soul, of this soul which has suffered at the hands of the protectors of peace. Well, that was a death poem by Juma al-Tasari. Um, and um, the poetry is definitely worth reading, worth reading aloud, actually. It's some of it just so very powerful, and um, it maybe reminds the country of the people who are still in Guantanamo and will be there forever. They will die there. So, long ago... Right? Who really remembers when the U.S. did this to over 780 prisoners? In all, only eight were ever convicted of anything, and half of those convictions were overturned. So four convicted out of 780, or 0.005%, were found guilty. To us in 2024, these are just numbers. Will the genocide in Gaza fade from our memories in the same way? Will the 8,000-plus Palestinian children bombed, burned, starved to death? Will they just become another Wikipedia paragraph? Another in a long line of shameless deeds that our military thought necessary at the time. We certainly have the Israel lobby to encourage our forgetfulness. Our House of Representative Pat Ryan talks about Israel's right to defend itself, as if this slaughter had any moral justification at all. He is paid handsomely by this uh, Israeli lobby, close to 30000 a year to pretend this genocide never happened. 30000 a year is uh, what Pat Ryan has been getting from the Israel lobby to defend its uh, actions and uh, to pretend that Gaza pretty much isn't happening. But I think Gaza will be forever remembered in shame. And I think that we will wear the same mark of Cain that most Germans will wear for as long as we all shall live. We're going to go to a song. This is by Ry Cooder. The song is 
Guantanamo. We use it to, as the lead into the next part of Activist Radio. We have a website, fantasylandmedia.org, where all our stories are keyword searchable going back uh, over 10 years. Uh, we think it's important because looking at the failings of our corporate press, we understand why so many Americans don't know our own history. We don't know our history of invasions abroad of uh, murders abroad. We have no idea what the U.S. is doing in our name. And a great part of that is because the news is fashioned by the people in charge, the government, uh, and all the corporations that own the media. Our first story today is from The Intercept. Whether reporting from the Middle East, the United States, or anywhere else across the globe, every CNN journalist covering Israel and Palestine must submit their work for review by the news organization's bureau in Jerusalem prior to publication under a long-standing CNN policy. While CNN says the policy is meant to ensure accuracy in reporting on a polarizing subject, it means that much of the network's recent coverage of the war in Gaza and its reverberations around the world has been shaped by journalists who operate under the shadow of the country's military censor. 
like all foreign news organizations operating in Israel, CNN's Journalism Bureau is subject to the rules of the Israeli Defense Forces censors, which dictates subjects that are off-limits for news organizations to cover and censors articles it deems unfit or unsafe to print. As The Intercept reported last month, the military censor recently restricted eight subjects, including security cabinet meetings, information about hostages, reporting on weapons captured by fighters in Gaza. In order to obtain a press pass in Israel, foreign reporters must sign a document agreeing to abide by the dictates of the censor. CNN's practice of routing coverage through the Jerusalem Bureau does not mean that the military censors directly reviews every story. Still, the policy stands in contrast to other major news outlets which in the past have run sensitive stories through the desks outside of Israel to avoid the pressure of that censor. I wonder if the New York Times sends its stories to this same Jerusalem Bureau. Someone from the New York Times decided not to publish this story at all uh, in our supposed newspaper of record. Uh, the second story is from Common Dreams. The Israeli government has mounted a pressure campaign urging governments around the world to publicly denounce South Africa's genocide case at the International Court of Justice, which is set to convene hearings on the detailed charges on Thursday. According to a cable obtained by Axios, the Israeli foreign minister is calling on the country's embassies to pressure host countries, diplomats, and political leaders to swiftly issue, quote, an immediate and unequivocal statement along the following lines, to publicly and clearly state that your country rejects the outrageous, absurd, and baseless allegations made against Israel, unquote. The cable warns that, quote, a ruling by the court could have significant potential implications that are not only legal, but have practical, bilateral, multilateral, economic, and security ramifications, unquote. Israel is seeking to prevent an injunction ordering the country to suspend its attack on Gaza. Well, no mention of this story either in our mainstream media it must be that miserable Jerusalem Bureau again, censoring all these stories so that they don't appear in the New York Times, for example. And our last story is from Haaretz, quote, But what ordinary people with little control over any aspects of their lives should be forgiven for, powerful heads of state and decision makers shouldn't be. When Israeli President Itzhak Herzog signed a mortar shell in a photo op with IDF soldiers on the border last month, he was saying, like Haratz journalist Neta Ahatuv pointed out, that, quote, revenge is an official goal of the war. And when U.S. former Vice President Mike Pence representative of a country that has the power to use military and financial support to Israel to change the course of the war. When he signed a mortar while on a visit to the Lebanese border last week, he was sending a message of gleeful killing 
and uncritical thinking. Herzog, of course, thanked Pence for his, quote, unwavering commitment to Israel. So our former vice president is signing Israeli mortars bound for the genocide of the Palestinian people in Gaza. This action is so shameful that even the New York Times refused to print a story about it. Our political elite, be they Republican or Democrat, have blood on their hands. And the Israeli genocide is the United States' genocide. And we the people will be held accountable for these war crimes being committed in all our names. We're going to go to a song now. This is Yoko Ono, and this song is War Zone. Let's go to that. Barbie dolls, wake up, wake up, hold your life. They're out to chill, out to kill, war zone. War zone, it's war zone. Guys stealing zillions gets away while we knock each other to make our day. Wake up. Wake up, hold your life. Wake up! They're out to chill, they're out to kill. Hold on! Hold on! Hold on! Hold on! Hold on! Don't make us laugh with your high-minded talk. But all you want from us is some pillow talk. Wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up! Hold your life. Hold on! Hold If you hear me, if you hear me, please help us.
All right, that was Yoko Ono. Um, quite an imagination um, song, War Zone. It's got war in there. It's got uh, sexuality in there. And um, it's a, a wonderful compilation of, uh, of her emotions, right? I, and I always wondered where I was going to play this. And this is a perfect uh, place to play it. Uh, the, the emotions of genocide the acknowledgement of genocide in our society changes changes just about anything. I'm going to read a, a point of view by Class Wars, Class Wars point of view. I remember the first time I read about the Holocaust. I was 12 years old and I had never learned about it in school. I couldn't believe it. The savagery was too much to comprehend. So I went to the library and I read all I could. But in the mid-50s, there just wasn't much to be had. It was only when I went to college that I was able to learn more about Kristallnacht, about the Nazis, about the extermination camps. I spent a lot of time putting it all together. I read about the Night of the Long Knives, I read about who had funded Hitler. I read about the failed assassination attempt. I thought if I studied it enough, I could come to terms with what had happened. I could, I could fit it in. But I was never able to, and when I read Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, I thought I knew what the horror really meant. The undefinable, the inexpressible. Watching and listening to the genocide in Gaza brought me all the way back to that 12-year-old student. How could human beings kill 8,000 children in a month? How could Israel send millions fleeing without any place to go? And how could the hospitals and the ambulances and the schools be targeted? How could my country pay for and protect a government in Israel that is as racist and bloodthirsty as the SS? How could the country I'd served in the military be the ultimate cause of all that horror? All right, Class War's point of view. And we're going to go to our guest now, Alexis Stambalis, a longtime activist, executive director of the Committee in Solidarity with the People of El Salvador, that's CISPACE. And we talk about the long history of U.S. corporate interest and militarism that have frustrated the will of the people for democracy in their country, El Salvador. So let's uh, go to our guest, Alexis Stambalis. All right, Alexis Stambelis, uh, representative from CISPACE uh, today, and that's uh, not citizens in support of the people of El Salvador. It's really committee in support of the people of El Salvador. And uh, can you tell us a little bit about this organization that's been, well, so active in the U.S. for the last, I'd say, 30 to 40 years? Yep. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, the Committee in Solidarity with the People of El Salvador was founded in 1980, and it was really built as a grassroots movement in the United States to end 
U.S. military support to the Salvadoran government, which, as people became increasingly aware throughout the late 70s and early 80s of the just horrific repression that was being committed against pro-democratic movements in El Salvador, student movements, union organizers, campesino, anything that threatened, you know, all the movements that had threatened the the powers that be um, in terms of the oligarchy and the military regimes in El Salvador were facing tremendous repression. And um, it became increasingly clear, um, especially when President Reagan took office in 1980, that, you know, the U.S.'s intention was to continue to back the Salvadoran military in their Cold War quest to end anything that looked to the Reagan administration like communism. So uh, mm-hmm. this was born as a response, really um, a pretty remarkable example. Um, there, there are several others in this period of internationalism and international solidarity, but um, throughout the late 70s, there were increasing number of Salvadoran refugees who were arriving to the United States, especially to cities like Los Angeles and San Francisco and other places. And a lot of the people who were fleeing were people who were targeted. You know, they were student organizers. They were union organizers. And, you know, if their name showed up on uh, a death squad list and, and they were able to find out about it in time, many of them obviously fled, not just to the United States, but many other countries too. Um, but in the United States, they kept organizing and they recognized that there was a really strategic role for people in the United States to play because of the tremendous support that the United States was providing to the South Korean mm-hmm. military. Um, and so they built a really broad national grassroots movement to, you know, really strengthen and sort of build the next generation of the anti-war movement in the United States, which one of the areas of focus at the time was, was um, you know, the U.S.'s sort of Cold War proxy wars in Central America. Mm-hmm. And they were, you know, nothing to uh, overlook, uh, uh, we have estimates of what 75,000 uh, people killed in these civil wars, a huge amount of, uh, of of people. And reports we would get back from El Salvador, you know, I was in uh, CISPACE in the 1980s. Uh, routinely, there'd be bodies by the side of the road uh, killed, uh, tortured, you know, it was a massive killing field uh, in El Salvador. Um, it was. And, yeah, and uh, as a member of committee, uh, member of CISPACE, we, we held a lot of programs in the 1980s. We had speakers, actually speakers from El Salvador. We found them places to, to talk about what their country was like under this repression. And... I hope we get time a little bit in the end to talk about how the Committee in Solidarity of the People of El Salvador was uh, repressed in this country by something called COINTELPRO, but we'll we'll talk about that uh, in a little while. But the uh, you saw some great victories in the 1990s. So the the peace uh, deal was finally signed. The FMLN were victorious in what 2009 and 2015 maybe it was 2014 Um, and um, you know they made some great progress uh, 
so is the story over for the committee or or is there something that still needs to be done in El Salvador? Oh, there's a lot that still needs to be done to challenge U.S. intervention, and whether that's military, political, economic, and certainly there's still a very um, courageous, visionary, well-organized grassroots movement in El Salvador on the left that that needs international solidarity, as there is in many countries in Latin America as well, um, and and around the world. So you know we still see our this dual role that you know was true from our our founding in the 1980s to you know educate and organize people to support popular movement struggles and revolutionary struggles and anti-imperialist struggles in El Salvador and throughout Central America and to couple that with strategic organizing here in the United States to challenge the ongoing types of policies that the U.S. was promoting um, that were against the interests of the people, both the people in Central America and, and, and working class people here as well. So, you know, in the 1980s, that primarily looked like military support. Um, the U.S., as people may know, famously or infamously was giving at one point a million dollars a day to the Salvadoran military under the Reagan administration. So there was a huge fight at the time to do exactly what you're saying, expose to people here in the United States the realities of what was happening. So the Reagan administration was lying about what they were doing in El Salvador. And so having, you know, to confront people with the images and the testimonies, as horrific as they were, about what was really happening in El Salvador and organize people into challenging U.S. military aid to El Salvador, which was done in tons of different ways, including really creative um, and and creative and bold actions in the streets and protests at the Pentagon and, and a lot of sort of really um, militant street action and consistent organizing, you know, in chapters all across the country. After the war ended, and like you said, there was a peace process that, um, you know, was in many ways considered to be, you know, it had its shortcomings, but it also was, you know, many considered to be one of the sort of more effective peace processes that have happened in Latin America because there was a real end to the war. You know, there, the war truly ended. The revolutionary uh, movement, the FMLN, demobilized and became a political party, which over the course of the next 20 years sort of slowly but surely sort of gained more representation in the legislature and eventually won the presidency in 2009. Um, obviously, there were a lot of things that were left to be desired um, in the peace process as well, especially on the economic front. A lot of the economic mm -hmm. structure, you know, that had given rise to the strikes and, um, you know, the labor movement and the campesino movement that had, you know, people were starving. Um, and so the sort of the types of uh, demands that working class people had in El Salvador that gave rise to the organizing that was responded to with repression and then led to the civil war, you know, those sort of fundamental underlying um, pillars of the economic structures of the society were not dismantled. But it's really important to say right now, especially since many of the accomplishments of the peace accords in 1992 are 
directly under attack by the current president, Nayib Bukele, how significant and important the peace process was, especially to create a democratic system in the country. There had not been a functional, real democracy in El Salvador prior to that. And the peace mm. accords laid out a lot of structures and processes by which popular movements finally were able to have representation in the government through political parties. Primarily, that has been the FMLN, as the, the Farabunda Marti National Liberation Front has been the principal left party in the country mm -hmm. for the past 30 years. Um, but that though, that that process itself of, of ending the war through negotiation, of creating a democratic system, that was, you know, that those were some of the key aims of the revolutionary movement to begin with. And the oppression of the 1980s, uh, actually in the U.S., was CISPACE aware of um, how governmental agencies in the U.S. were working against them, essentially spying on them at times, uh, sometimes falsely charging them, breaking into their headquarters. I think we had 50 uh, CISPACE headquarters broken into in the space of three or four years in the 1980s. Do you still talk about that uh, that effort of the U.S. government to destroy a peace movement in the U.S.? Yeah, I think it's an important history. Um, and I think you summed it up very well. And it eventually became clear, including through, um, you know, various inquiries that there that there had been a pretty widespread domestic spying operation against CISPIS and many other organizations in the peace movement, um, including, you know, the involvement of many FBI field offices from from my understanding. Um, so I think it's important for for us and, you know, people organizing now and sort of, you know, understand how much, you know, the U.S. foreign policy is something that the U.S. really does not like to be challenged. Um, obviously, there's many aspects of domestic policy where that is true as well. But, you know, the Reagan administration had staked a lot on, on their war in El Salvador and their war in Central America, their sort of proxy wars in the period of the Cold War. Um, you know, and Reagan famously saying that he was going to draw a line in the sand against communism mm -hmm. in El Salvador. And so, you know, I think it's in, important for people to understand that that, that was something that you know, the U.S. government was taken very seriously and that people who were out in the streets openly challenging it, people who were um, supporting revolutionary movements in El Salvador and Central America, you know, were considered very suspect here in the United States. And, you know, I think yeah. we, we in the younger generations here, you know, really <clears throat> it's important for us to know that history and, and we owe a real debt of gratitude to the people who who came before us in the movement who built you know who built a really powerful grassroots movement of solidarity um with the popular movement in El Salvador and you know they 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 were doing it under much higher stakes situations um so it is important to to know that that was not happening sort of in a neutral a neutral political it was very interesting to actually work in this space because we did have people who came in and um, tried to arm us, wanted to buy rifles for us. Nice. And we were just horrified. Um, 
we had another person coming in and um, wanting to uh, establish some sort of drug connection between, you know, that person and El Salvador. Right. And we'd follow up on these people. They'd give me give us their names and they'd give us their addresses where they worked. We'd we checked it out. They didn't exist. These are just, um, you know, we never really were able to prove that they were governmental um, workers. But COINTELPRO had thousands of people that tried to infiltrate these uh, these meetings we would have and and tried to uh, change really the direction of. Um, the different events we had as well, trying to make them, you know, more violent uh, and uh, trying to link them to drugs. So it was really pretty fascinating to be on the front line. I mean, <clears throat> to some extent we were safe, although some of us did go to El Salvador and, and then down there we did not feel safe, of course, because nobody was safe in El Salvador in the 1980s. But I think it was a learning experience for many of us. And um, I was a, a veteran during the Vietnam War, and I never expected my own country to treat people like that, you know, within the country. Do you think the U.S. government is still infiltrating CISPACE? We don't have any indications of that now. I mean, obviously, we do have a lot of. Um, concern with and solidarity for U.S. government infiltration and, you know, and spying operations on other movements, mm -hmm. especially movements led by people of color here in the United States. I mean, I think I see. there's a lot of evidence of of different types of of actions that have been happening to different movement leaders primarily who are people of color in the United States and who are challenging sort of the fundamental systems around white supremacy and policing. I mean I think my sense, not this not being my area of expertise, is that a lot of a lot of that intimidation has gone towards, you know, domestic movements that are challenging I see. In the United States, uh, which is, mm. you know, not new either in terms of, you know, what we know about the history of COINTELPRO in terms of its targeting, especially of, of black-led organizations. So, mm. so that's not new. Um, I do think that it's, um, it is important for people to understand that history. And I think, you know, what's so remarkable about this, you know, the organization is now 40, 43 years old and has managed to continue to sort of develop as an intergenerational organization. And we're very fortunate to have members and supporters who were involved in the early days of, of building the Solidarity Movement, mm. as well as now a lot of our new members are themselves. Uh, Salvadoran, Central American, their parents came oh, isn't that something, during huh? the war or their parents came after the war. And so there's a huge number of, you know, young, younger organizers in the U.S. who are themselves, they're part of the Central American diaspora. They are products of the, you know, U.S. support for the war. They're products of U.S. support for economic policies that have driven millions of people out of Mexico and mm. Central America over the last 
20, 30 years under policies of neoliberalism, you know, privatization, sure. you know, stripping down of government services, trade policies that favor transnational corporations and make things like domestic agriculture incredibly challenging, especially in smaller countries. So, you know, that's sort of... Um, we're CISPUS is really fortunate to have sort of maintained a democratic grassroots organizing model. Yeah. And still have local chapters, and the you know for all these for all these years, of, really. Yep, and and that's allowed us to now have many of our members. Most of our new members are themselves Central American, um, yeah. and it brings a lot of really important dynamics to the movement, including because the voices of Central Americans in the United States have, you know, historically been marginalized, and that's that's the case now as well. There's not nearly enough base representation for Central Americans to sure. tell their own stories and to provide the analysis about what is wrong with U.S. policy in Central America. Um, and so that's something that's very exciting that's happening, mm -hmm. not just within CISPIS, within more broadly within. Uh, the Central American Solidarity Movement. Um, there's that's that's the case in several of our sort of uh, sister organizations as well. That a lot of the new leadership is coming from people who themselves came, whose families were originally from Central America, and who right. you know are are in a position to to lead this organizing now from a different place, but one that's sure. sort of committed to the same principles around supporting the grassroots movements in in their families' countries of origin and challenging ongoing U.S. policy. Because the, the thing is that, you know, U.S. policy has, you know, it's changed perhaps in its scale, but the aims remain the same. And we sort mm. of still see two dominant threads that sort of run through much of U.S. policy towards Central America especially. The first is economic policy that promotes mm -hmm. the interests of transnational corporations and the oligarchy, including domestic oligarchy in the countries that, you know, their business interests and as much as those align with transnational corporate business interests are prioritized over everything else. So that mm. looks like, and this was even true during the Obama administration, the U.S. pushing progressive governments like El Salvador had at the time to adopt a public-private partnerships law that was widely mm. opposed by the governing party, by the labor movement, by the environmental movement, yeah. and yet the U.S. held $300 million in development aid over El Salvador's head until they adopted this public-private partnerships law that would basically offer up most public services to public-private partnerships mm -hmm managed by private corporations. So yeah. that that is a, a feature of US policy that has remained true and that is 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 as much a part of democratic administrations um, as Republican, if not sometimes more so in terms of it's more it's more well planned out um, and more intentional. And then the other Oh wasn't Arch Archbishop Oscar Romero uh, that was uh, under that wasn't under um, Reagan at all was it? It was under uh, Jimmy Carter, right? Well, yes, yes. Carter's the end of Carter administration sort of coincided, and then the beginning of the Reagan administration coincided yeah. with the really worst um, atrocities that happened in El Salvador, and and I think mm. it was, you know, that the U.S. had continued to, you know, despite you know 
Carter's pledge to, you know, be human rights focused, there was still a partnering with the military and it was very clear what the Salvadoran military and the death squads that were associated with them were were doing. And it took a decade, more than a decade, to finally break the U.S.'s insistence on providing military aid military right military. right that that Even was though a fight knew what they were doing and, and that's what they were the other doing. feature that is true today you know the united states's entire security policy in central america is 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 highly militarized you know it's framed in terms of the drug war it's framed in terms of the war on migrants but what it amounts to has been both a militarization of the mm. police force as well as there's now increasing levels of involvement of the military in domestic policing throughout much of Central America and Mexico. And even though yeah. there's you know, congressional, um, you know, legislation that opposes the militarization of the police, simultaneously to that, there's ongoing cooperation between, you know, the U.S. military and the militaries yeah. of many of the countries in Central America and Mexico. And we're seeing that now, especially um, the violence of that, especially being exacted uh, against mm. right. and the militarization uh, Alexis, borders. Has the, has the Free Palestine Movement uh, put you into a dilemma, or do you see some of the same strains uh, of colonialism, militarization, and abandonment of human rights uh, that we see now in, for example, in Gaza. Uh, how does CISPACE deal with this uh, really emerging national movement uh, for human rights for Palestinians? Well, I think two things that are important to share about that, you know, one is that something we've been trying to highlight, you know, just so people in the United States are more aware, you know, the Mm -hmm. sort of solidarity with Palestine has been a longstanding part of a lot of political movements in Latin America, including in Mm -hmm. El Salvador. Um, And so, you know, I think that's something important to highlight that there's, there's been ongoing solidarity with Palestine from many left movements in in Latin America for many, many years. And I think there's a lot of, you know, parallels that people there draw in terms of of being an oppressed people and of Mm -hmm. being at the receiving end of U.S. military aid directly Mm -hmm. and indirectly. And I mean, I was very struck seeing some of the news, you know, about white phosphorus bombs being used in Palestine and Gaza today, because that was a very parallel situation to what happened in mm. El Salvador. You know, the U.S. was supplying white phosphorus bombs to the Salvadoran military, which they denied, but then through activists and journalists and the dedication mm-hmm. of people in the peace movement, you know, it was revealed that, in fact, the U.S. had supplied white phosphorus bombs. And that was the kind of work that so many people in the Central mm. American Solidarity Movement and the peace movement accomplished by challenging and journalists, right. of course, you know, that were able to challenge what the official narrative was coming from the U.S. government. And in doing so, you know, politicized a lot of people around, you know, mm. what, what, how much to trust, what was the narrative that was coming mm-hmm. from, from the U.S. government about, you know, their well, what was really happening essentially uh we just have enough time i've, I've kept john quite a bit longer but uh 
Did you ever use the word empire when you discussed the U.S. Uh, um, over-influence of El Salvador uh, and uh, pro-corporate stance that the U.S. tries to push on all of Central America? Yes, and, and and many of us do, and I think it's it's fitting as you know as if there's a lot of discussion of sort of neo-colonialism, um, mm -hmm. different neo-colonial projects in terms of you know what is the United States after in Central America? They're after mm -hmm. control, especially mm -hmm. over natural resources. You know, there's right. a lot of struggles on the ground in El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, um, especially Guatemala and Honduras. Uh, over the rights to natural resources and the rights sure. to land, yep. mm -hmm. you know, and there's a lot of involvement, not just of U.S. corporations, but Canadian and other corporations. Yeah, Canadian and, and as well, right. And other industries yeah. where you, you know, you see much like, you know, parallels to the coup in 1954 in Guatemala, you know, in terms of the military and political apparatus are acting mm -hmm. on of economic interests. And so yeah. you know, very frequently you see state repression against communities and organized movements that are fighting to defend land and natural resources, which is yeah. what the corporate wants. And then you see a lot of maneuvers at the level of, you know, who's getting U.S. aid, who's getting U.S. economic aid, the U.S. Mm. pushing policies through the embassies that are you know, beneficial pretty exclusively right. for corporate interests and not for communities or environmental issues. Or well, you know, well, well, we didn't get uh, to, and I'm sorry we didn't, maybe we'll have to do this again, uh, is the various uh, FMLN um, advances that have been made for society. Really quite an outstanding list of uh, how they got into government and pursue the people's agenda as far as education and healthcare. So we'll have to say that, say that for another day. And uh, I want to thank you so much for uh, telling us about El Salvador, about CISPACE, and then relating it to other, you know, military uh, misadventures in the rest of the world and making that connection for us. So thank, thank you so much for being on. Yeah, thanks for having me. And I think the sisters is working on a campaign right now to continue challenging not just military but also police aid to El Salvador. There's a new right-wing government in El Salvador now under Naive mm -hmm. Tele, and um, there's a lot that we could say about that. I invite people to come to the CISPES website, www.cispes.org, C-I-S-P-E-S.org, -E mm -hmm. to learn about What's happening in El Salvador now? They have a right-wing populist government. He's running for re-election in February in violation of El Salvador's constitution. And mm. unfortunately, we're seeing that the U.S. State Department is continuing to support his administration in various ways, and mm. we've been working uh, on an ongoing campaign to to end U.S complicity with really widespread human rights abuses that are happening yeah. in El Salvador through continued military and police aid. Mm. So we invite people to, to check that out because the struggle Great. Well, thank you, Alexis. I really appreciated that uh, talk and uh, we'll have to do it again at some point and uh, take another look at El Salvador. But I, we haven't actually done that on activist radio in, a, in maybe two years and uh, Central America is just too important to leave out when you look at the 
picture of U.S. dominance, uh, it probably is one of the worst examples uh, of oh, what yeah. can happen. Yeah. So yeah, thank you so much, that, Alexis. Thank you so much for having me. Great. Bye now. Bye. So tune in next week, same time, same channel, to listen to the Class Wars take on news and history. Talk to you next week. Activist Radio can be heard Thursdays 5 to 6 p.m. on WVKR 91.3 FM at Vassar College in Poughkeepsie, New York. Sundays 4 to 5 p.m. on WIOF 104.1 FM in Woodstock, New York. And Sundays 5 to 6 p.m. from the Progressive Radio Network PRN.FM. Past shows can be heard on ClassWars.org. Please like our Facebook page, read our Class Wars blog for commentary on today's interview. We'll be here next week at the same time to help you become part of the resistance.